This is Without Compromise, a show that explores what happens when you won't settle for anything less than your crazy ideas. We'll talk to athletes, founders, adventurers, and entrepreneurs of all kinds about living without compromise. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. Welcome to the show. We're programmed for survival, so our instinct is to give up on these situations, to move away from them. I thought if I didn't sign up for that race, that I was just going to disappear. It doesn't have to be these big, huge things that everyone thinks you need to do to make a difference. We don't always get the pleasure of talking about our international athletes, uh, some of our pro athletes and ambassadors here at Athletic Brewing, but today we are talking to one, Adam Campbell. He hails from the Canadian Rockies, uh, but he was born and raised in Africa, in Nigeria, and has just a very interesting background, but if you research him or, or know anything about him, uh, one story really comes to mind, and one thing really starts to come up is that he, he has experienced some pretty devastating grief in the mountains, so it's a fair warning here for anyone that might be going through something or might uh, not want to talk about something like that today. Uh, this episode will feature discussions about uh, some pretty devastating things that can happen in the mountains. But on the flip side, uh, you know, you, we can't ignore the fact that a lot of these places we love to explore and things we love to do are inherently dangerous. But it doesn't mean we should avoid it either. There's a lot we learn through those experiences. And in a lot of ways, that is life. Life is going to happen. And we do everything we can to make life as enjoyable and rewarding as possible, but sometimes there are just things out of our control, and Adam's story is going to be dealing with that. And there are many more times he's told this story in a, in a more longer way. We don't have the most time on this show, so I encourage you to check out some of Adam's other talks, but it was a pleasure getting to know him a little bit more, getting to know some of the folks here in our community at Athletic Brewing, and I hope you learned something through this talk. And just like Adam says at the end of this episode, I hope you really relish the next post-adventure brew you get to have with your friends because that is such an amazing part of the experience where you finish an adventure and you sit down, you have a meal, have a drink, and just talk about what you just did and some of the stories that come from it. That is something that is just so exciting, so wonderful. So let's go ahead and jump into Adam's story. Adam Campbell, welcome to Without Compromise. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Looking forward to this. Where are you coming from? Where's home for you? At the moment, I'm calling from Squamish, British Columbia, and I've been living here since December um, of this year, or I guess of, uh, of, uh, you know, of last year. And uh, But prior to that, I was in Canmore, Alberta, uh, so in the heart of the Canadian Rockies. And um, yeah, for a number of reasons, I felt like a change, and change to the Coast Mountains has, has been a good one. Squamish is a pretty special place, especially, especially come summertime here. How different is it than a Canmore? A lot of folks would say, well, you know, one Canadian mountain town to another, <laughs> how, how much different can it be? Well, I mean, when you when you look right uh, from Canmore, you're looking at the prairies. When you look right from Squamish, you're looking at the ocean. So that's uh, already a pretty big, big difference. Um, and then, you know, from a, a practical standpoint, you've got uh, really different climates. Uh, so Canmore is at a little bit of altitude. Um the rock there is uh, these heavily glaciated uh, limestone peaks for the most part, and much much colder, harsher winters. Uh, whereas Squamish, um, you're dealing with coastal granite for the most part. There is other types of rock, but so a really different style of rock, and then um, obviously more coastal climate, a little bit more Pacific Northwest like, and uh, you know got like big rainforest. So spectacular, beautiful old growth trees, and uh, just really really lush. Um, you know, it's, it's darker and rainier, uh, whereas Canmore is a little bit more, you know, for, for American audience, a little bit more like uh, 
like a Colorado or a Utah, you know, quite, quite sunny, uh, but cold winters for sure. And so I read that you're a, you're a sufferer in beautiful, you, you like to suffer in beautiful places. When did that start? I mean, was it just growing up? Cause in that area, I'm sure it's unavoidable, but, but when was it for you that it was a, a conscious decision? Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, uh, I mean, I, I actually grew up in West Africa. I grew up in Lagos, Nigeria, uh, which about is about as far away from the mountains as one could imagine. It's, uh, um, I, grew, I grew up on the ocean in West Africa, uh, so in a completely, um, you know, flat part of, of the country uh, with, uh, you know, the water was tropical warm, the weather was tropical, so you're only a few degrees above the equator. But from a really young age, um, I didn't have, we didn't have television growing up, and I spent all my time outside. So I think I've just always equated, uh, you know, like play and recreation with, and just sort of happiness with, uh, with being outside. And, um, you know, at first I was like surfing and, you know, or playing in the, you know, in the youngest age, like, you know, making little sandcastles in the ocean and sort of burning your feet on the hot sand, to, uh, you know, them playing in the, in the shore break waves and then starting to, you know, surf a little bit in the, in the beach breaks there. And then later on it was sailing. And so I think I've just always enjoyed, um, challenging myself uh in nature and uh, frankly it's you know like nature always wins <laughs> um you know so it's sort of you know developing a deep respect for it and just sort of seeing if you can um i don't know endure what nature has to give and give to you and sort of developing the skills and respect to sort of work with it as well gosh that's really that's really awesome uh, yeah i i did read that but i i i, I must have skipped just preparing questions around it but i do want to know you know what what drew you back to Canada or, or what was really the experience growing up in Nigeria, like a totally different environment, like I said, culture yeah. and everything. Yeah. Um, so my, my parents are both Canadian and they, but they moved there when I was nine months old. My dad was, uh, worked uh, for a telecom company and they're putting fiber optic cables throughout West Africa and later on cell towers. And, uh, my dad lived there for, um, 43 years. He actually, he, you know, he retired, but he, uh, he now lives in Southern Spain. So my dad's definitely a sun seeker, uh, to the, to the extreme. But um, I moved back to Canada when I was 17. There wasn't really much of a, of a proper high school, and, I, and my parents really wanted me to experience what it was like to be in Canada. And I actually ended up going to boarding school in eastern, eastern Canada, um, so an hour and a half outside of Toronto in this small town called Port Hope. And it was, it was wonderful. Um, I mean, it was kind of out of the movies, really. Uh, so Lagos, uh, where I grew up, is you know, one of the world's big megacities. You know, there's almost zero infrastructure, and uh, it's loud and it's chaotic. But we would, we would go to, to Europe and to the Alps and to, to Spain for all, most of our vacations. But going to this really green, lush, outdoor, beautiful campus was, was just a really wonderful place. And um, that's sort of where I started discovering, uh, you know, like cross-country skiing and backcountry skiing and mountain biking. And, um, and started to discover a little bit more about organized sport because I played a lot of sports growing up and I did a lot of activities, but there was no real organized sport per se. You know, we'd show up and play a soccer match, but there was no training. And so I started training for, uh, for these other outdoor sports when I was about 17. Is there anything you miss about Nigeria that Canada just can't, can't provide? Um, you know, it's the, so the one thing that I, I had growing up um, in so I grew up in, in, in more of an expat community, but so I had my, my group of friends growing up were really, really international. Um, like, so my, be- my best friend was Ghanaian, uh, so he's from Ghana. Uh, and then another, my other best friend was Syrian. Um, and, you know, there's like German and Italian. So it was this really international upbringing. And that was a, that's a really, really unique way for a kid uh, to, be, to be raised. And then the one thing that you also 
um, get exposed to is just like the, the deep poverty that exists in places like that. But just the, the joy of life that, you know, that people who have very seemingly very, very little from a Western perspective just have this richness of life and this incredibly deep culture. And um, just sort of, you know, even though like life is really hard for people, people also really look out for each other in places like that. And not that they don't do that in Canada, but I think that the deep appreciation for really, really simple things, uh, you know, is often lost in us in, in Western cultures. You know, the more we have, the more we want. Um, whereas when you have absolutely nothing, you, you, which a lot of people really don't, um, I think they just develop a really deep appreciation for life and, and simple pleasures. And I think that that's a wonderful worldview to have. Well, well tell us about, you decided to go back to Canada, 17 years old, uh, creating your own life. What started getting you into the mountains in, in the sense of like starting to do some of these ultras? How, how long was that kind of trajectory and what were some of the yeah. milestones there? Because I know you were competitive from triathlons and being on, uh, you know, national sports teams, tons of them what what was kind of the trajectory there yeah so when, when like from a young age like as i said all of our vacations happened in the mountains or in mountain areas so they also just kind of always associated mountains once again with like with play and, and vacation time so you know there's there's just a real joy to, to be in the mountains and you're you know you're skiing in the winter or uh, you know in the summer going and hiking in the hills or sort of scrambling on rocks and stuff and so i think i've always just sort of been drawn to mountainous areas and um my, my trajectory there, though, was when I was um, 18, uh, I'd started, you know, as I said, running cross country, and I, I grew up swimming in the ocean, so I've always been quite a strong open water swimmer, even though I wasn't a great, like, pool swimmer necessarily, and I, I entered a triathlon, and it happened to be the Junior Canadian Triathlon Championships, and I qualified for the the national team at, um, at that race, um, so I had, a, I had quite a good race, and I think it's sort of my, my base level of fitness, and, you know, maybe some lucky genetics, and little bit of talent and I uh so I made the national team and so it was, it was pretty cool as an as an 18 year old 19 year old to go and compete at the world championships and put on the maple leaf for the first time even though I you know hadn't grown up in Canada I always saw myself as a, a proud Canadian and that same year uh, a, a young Canadian guy named Simon Whitfield um qualified for the Olympics and ended up winning the first Olympic gold medal in triathlon in the year 2000 and I had um, started college that year, so university in Canada. And Simon happened to be from the hometown, uh, Kingston, Ontario, where I was going to university. And he came out and trained with us after winning this gold medal. And like the rest of Canada, I watched him, you know, sprint down the finishing chute and, and win this this race. And you know, he sort of became an instant Canadian sporting legend. And here I was uh, getting to train with him. And uh, it, was, it was pretty uh, pretty awesome doing a, we were doing a cross-country running workout. You know, it was like six by three minutes or eight by three minutes or something like that. And not, not quite keeping up with him, but like, you know, not also getting totally obliterated by him. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool that he probably hadn't been training for months at that point. <laughs> he had probably been partying, celebrating his gold medal, but I didn't, I didn't think too much about it. I was like, oh, I'm hanging with a gold medalist here. And he uh, invited me to, 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 to basically fly across Canada and come and train with uh, – the Canadian national triathlon program. And I was like, well, it's kind of amazing that this Olympic gold medalist is inviting me to come train with him. And that sounds a lot better than, you know, the, uh, the statistics course I'm taking. And so I dropped out of school and flew across the country, uh, to Western Canada, to Victoria, British Columbia, and started training with him. Um, and with sort of a long-term goal of trying to qualify for the 2008, uh, Olympics. And I, I got to compete um, and train alongside some of the best triathletes in the world. Simon had this amazing way of gathering the best triathletes in the world um, 
around him and they, they kind of gravitated there as well. So, you know, he had uh, the world, you know, like world champions and, um, you know, national champions from around the world, really. And, you know, Hawaii Ironman champions training there. And so I got this really deep immersion into what it was like training with the best athletes in the world and how to be a professional athlete and how to train really hard. And uh, in about 2006, I realized that I just didn't quite have it, what it took to qualify for the Olympics. And so I, um, I, I kind of retired from triathlon at that point. Uh, hung up my speedo and singlet and um i became the national team manager uh my partner at the time was uh you know it, it finished fourth at the world championships the year before and simon was was my best friend and he had a you know pretty good shot at meddling again at the olympics and so i uh, decided the only way to, to support them was to become a national team manager um so i did that but i didn't want to give up on sports and so i started jumping in uh trail running races and i got to use some of my fitness and triathlon in the early days of trail running and trail running races and um it kind of just grew from there i started uh for sort of big international mountain race was the world long distance mountain running championships and i think i finished uh ninth at that at, the, at that event at the jungfrau marathon and then um and then i started getting more and more curious about ultras and um and, and that evolved uh, over time started running 100 mile races in the mountains and I started discovering that more and more of my runs were turning into scrambles. Um, and so I, I'd always kind of rock climbed a little bit in, in climbing gyms and dabbled in it, but I got more and more interested in that rock climbing. And then that led to me doing more and more backcountry skiing um, and ski touring. And slowly, next thing I knew, I was probably spending more time doing like fast mountain travel than actually racing. And, um, yeah, sort of became more of an alpinist or sort of combining mountain running and alpinism and light alpinism. Yeah. So that's sort of a, a really, really quick summary of a more complex story, but uh, it, it gives a general overview anyway. Hey, that was I, I was following right along. I'm like, wow, oh, this is so logical. You, you you don't jump all over the place like I would if I told the story. So I appreciate <laughs> that. Um, well, well, what do you think? I I, I did read that you uh you know as you progress, just like you just explained, your uh, your your events and your activities became more and more wild based more and more adventure or based uh, less uh event based and so what, what do you think was drawing you to that or that less organized experience um, well i'd say a couple things i mean i I'd, I'd competed for a very long time at that point at a very high level and um you know and so you know i, I did sort of experience what it was like to you know, to race a lot. And I've always had a really adventurous kind of curious spirit. And, you know, as I was, as I was running trail running races and events, it was, it was really cool. And I really enjoyed the competition and, um, you know, the sport, uh, when I first got into it in around 2000, um, you know, 2007, um, it was really starting to, it was starting to see a big shift, you know, trail running was starting to take off and these are like events like UTMB, and, um, you know, Western states were starting to get more coverage in mainstream media. People like Scott Jurek and Anton Krupichka and Killian Journey were starting to appear on the, on the scene. And so, and there were, I think, also sort of around the time of, like, you know, YouTube was starting to happen. And uh, so we're starting to watch these trail running videos. And it was, it was really cool to, to see um, the growth of sport. And I, I think I kind of got caught up in that. And, um, and it, it, was, it was neat to be part of the competitive side of it. But after a bit, I, I was starting to get, as I said, more and more curious, just spending more time moving in the mountains and, you know, I'd be running across the base of, um, you know, ridge lines. And rather than sort of staying on the green trail, I'd start, you know, scrambling up these ridge lines instead. And, 
and it was just a sense of adventure and sort of seeing where I could, where my, my body and feet and you know, technical skill and courage or stupidity would, would take me. Um, I just love looking at maps and seeing people link up ridge lines or, um, you know, sort of reading trip reports and hearing people who had done, uh, you know, like a six day backcountry hike and seeing if we could do it in a day and that kind of stuff. I thought it was, it just sort of felt really freeing. Um, and I think having done such a, you know, sport at such a high level and in a really structured competitive environment, I just really enjoyed the freedom of still being able to push myself and challenge myself, you know, but doing it in a way where it's more in response to the terrain and nature and the environment you're moving in. I know that uh, you were doing a challenge with some friends when you had your accident, but up until that point, what what was kind of your philosophy around danger, or did you have one, or, or, or just slowly progressing and learning and making good decisions in the moment is you know the best way to go? Yeah, I mean, I I would say that um, I, you know I probably progressed too quickly into into hardcore sort of mountain activities just due to the fitness and then. Um, the people that I, you know, I was lucky to be exposed to, um, one of my sponsors, Arcteryx, uh, is a very well-known, um, uh, you know, like clothing brand in the mountain space. And so a lot of the other athletes are these like world renowned ice climbers and rock climbers. And so I got to go on trips with them and do things with them. And so rather than having a slow natural progression through, um, you know, with, with, with like a, a more traditional mountaineering background, I kind of jumped into the slightly higher end of, of mountain sports quite quickly. And so uh, even though I had the fitness with what I was doing, I think I was kind of lacking the, um, you know, like the really hard skills and the basic understanding. So I think probably the, the reality is, is I was able to get away with a lot and I wasn't fully aware of the, the risks and dangers that I was um, putting myself into, you know, so basically you don't know what you don't know. Um, and now with, you know, a bit more experience and time, I'm much more aware of sort of the early risks um, I was getting away with and, you know, eventually didn't get away with. And uh, I was really lucky to, to, to not die um, uh, from that accident. Well, you know, when, when I interview folks, I, I try not to, you know, ask the same questions that they've been asked a million times, but do, do you mind telling us some of that story? Like what, what happened? I just think it's so powerful. And if you feel like revisiting it, I'd love to hear it. No, for sure. Um, so in August of 2016, um, me and two friends, uh, Nick Elson, who's probably the best mountain runner, mountain athlete that uh, most people have never heard of, at least in North America, um, and another friend, Dakota Jones, who um, is a world-class ultra runner, but he also has a very strong climbing background. Um, we're in this area called Rogers Pass, British Columbia, and it's the birthplace of, um, of mountaineering in Canada. And it's a really, really beautiful um, alpine environment. And wanted to do something called the Horseshoe Traverse. And it's uh, basically a link up of 14 peaks. And it's, it is a mountaineering route. Um, like you're, you know, there's fifth class, um, you know, up to five, four, five, five kind of terrain, but with insane exposure and, uh, you know, there's glacier crossings. And um, we were, we, this, this route gets done on occasion and it typically gets done in about, you know, four days. And we were hoping to do it in a single push um, and ideally sort of under 24 hours because that was sort of the philosophy we like to take to things was sort of moving light and fast. And, you know, by taking more of a trail running mentality into this, into that environment um, and, and, you know, and leaving things like, uh, you know, like racks and, um, you know, heavy, heavy climbing gear behind, uh, you can cover a lot more ground, but you're also taking much bigger risks as well. 
And we'd, we, you know, our day started out really well and we'd covered the first three peaks and Nick and Dakota were slightly ahead of me and we were going up this, uh, this little buttress called the Saltzer Tower. It's not even a, a main prominence. It's just a little, a little rock buttress. And, um, uh, you know, I, w- I wasn't paying attention. I was kind of rushing a little bit and I ended up pulling out a block um, and I wasn't properly secured and ended up falling about 200 feet down the side of this mountain. It wasn't a straight fall. It was a series of ledges and I, uh, you know, found myself tumbling down these ledges and um you know and, and when those sort of things happen time uh, you know stands still but it also sort of speeds up and I, w- I was conscious through the entire thing i was wearing a helmet at the time which which saved my life but um i, I you know you know i was tumbling and all of a sudden i realized i wasn't falling anymore and but i was face down in uh in, in a pile of blood and i remember not liking that and I uh, pushed myself and rolled myself over onto my back and instantly realized that that was, that was a really big mistake. Uh, but I needed to just stand still. And, um, you know, luckily, luckily Nick and Dakota are, um, you know, some of the fastest mountain runners in the world. And they're also very skilled um, climbers. Um, and they're able to get down to me really quickly and call search and rescue. And we have a world-class search and rescue crew in the Canadian Rockies. And they were able to get to me within three hours of my accident. Um, you know, I was, I was bleeding really heavily, but... Fortunately, I, um, you know, just, and, and due to nothing I did, just really, really dumb luck. Like, um, you know, I, I could, I, I knew I could wiggle my toes, but I was in a lot of pain and they evacuated me and uh, ended up in surgery for over nine hours. And I had broken my, my back in the THT 11 vertebra and uh, I'd fractured the top of my hip bone. Um, a lot of, uh, a lot of internal bleeding, uh, lacerations across my entire body from, from the rock and um, it fractured my ankle as well but I was alive and I was conscious and, um, I wasn't paralyzed. So, um, you know, after the surgery, when I came to, I just, you know, I sort of had to deal with that for the last number of years, but all in all, um, you know, I was able to make a, a quite a good recovery, um, f- from the injuries, um, you know, never be able to compete quite the same, the same way or run the same way I could prior to the accident. But uh, when you have to go through something that traumatic, all you do is, um, you know, sort of, I was more, a lot more important to have gratitude for the things I, I could do instead of really dwelling on what um, I wasn't able to do anymore. Uh, because even on a relative scale, you know, the even though I, I can't run the you know the you know the, the you know the four thirty minute miles I once could, I you know I can still run it like a I can still run um, you know, and I think that there's um, or you know even if I could just hike, um, you know, I'd be grateful for that. And so I, I try to make that my mind frame. How did your relationship with the mountains change after that? accident so i mean one I, I realized that you know the way that i was moving into mountains there was a lot of ego involved i was really trying to prove myself i think i think i was, I was kind of self-conscious maybe that i did lack the skill um you know that a lot of other climbers had necessarily and so i was trying to prove myself like a lot of young uh, people in the mountains do and uh i i instantly realized that you know they, they really don't care um about who you are or what your cv is you know but they're a place that they're just dangerous. They're just really, really dangerous environments. And, uh, you know, you can move quickly enough that you need to move really cautiously. And so I sort of rewound a little bit what I, what I did. And I, you know, I sat down with a lot of these sort of, um, you know, mountain mentors. And I, I started from the beginning and started to try to really work on like my basic soft skills and learn how to approach the mountains in a, in a safer, slower way, um, uh, you know, and then hopefully progress from there. So I, uh, you know, I, I basically just treat them with a lot more respect than I, than I, than I previously pre- previously did. Like they're a lot of fun. Like they, and they, they are in their sorts of like incredible beauty and awe. 
Um, but one of the one of the reasons why they invoke that is because they're very very dangerous harsh environments. Your philosophy before, which was the more chaotic your life got, the bigger your goals uh, would would become, and the goals you would chase would be. And I, and I guess that's where that that maybe uh, you let that go. Uh, I mean, I won't necessarily say that I, I let my, my my goals go in the mountains, but I think the reasons for doing them shifted. Um, you know, rather than doing them to prove myself, um, you know, which I think, I'm being honest, was was probably a large part of it. Um, you know, I, I try to remind myself that it's just it's more about curiosity and uh, and sort of being less attached to, to to the outcome. I think it's still cool to to try like rad things and to like to be inspired by 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 hard lines and um, but to not being to not identifying yourself by the outcome. I think that that was sort of the big the big mental shift that happened for me anyway. But I, I know a lot of people that have gone through mountain accidents who just never went back, and that's totally okay as well. But for me, that you know, I've always um, you know they, they continue to be a source of beauty and, uh, and and strength and empowerment for me. And um, it, there's no sense of like you know wanting to go back and, and conquer at what I've done, but rather just go and sort of understand and immerse my, myself in them. Did you think to yourself like, okay, you know, a lot of people have a situation like this, uh, an accident that really changes their life. Did you think, you know, I had that. It's it's behind me. It's done. I now I have to learn from that, and this is the rest of my life. I don't know if I was so naive as to as to think that nothing could ever happen again. I think that'd be a really really dangerous uh, mindset to go into the mountains with. I think, you know, you, you don't know, you certainly never think you're invincible. Um, but I. Um, as I said, like I, you know, I continue to, to give them a, a lot of respect and to try to keep developing skills. You know, taking avalanche courses and rock rescue courses and weather courses and spending time with really, you know, like you know, like mentors and we're, you know, people who spend a lot of time in the mountains and sort of asking them questions and just trying to be like deeply curious about the places I, I move in um, to try to minimize, uh, you know, the, the likelihood of something happening. But anytime you're in a risky environment. Um, you know, in high high consequence environments, you know that you, you try to stack the odds in your favor, but you can never guarantee uh, that nothing will ever happen. And you know, and, and me and my friends and and, and my, uh, my my partner at the time, Laura, um, talked about those things a lot. Um, you know, when you're out there, you're you're constantly like basically doing risk assessments and hazard assessments when you're when you're moving in, in technical mountain terrain or in, in actual backcountry. Like to, to give people context, the Canadian Rockies are, are even though they're they're accessible, they're very very wild, very very harsh mountains. Um, you know, they're they're really really remote and quite unforgiving. Um, wonderful places to prepare you for, you know, like the Himalayas. But places like the Himalayas are far less remote than um, than the Canadian Rockies are. Um, you know, there's just thousands and thousands of kilometers and miles of uninhabited terrain, and much of that terrain sort of still unexplored by people. Well, so, so you get through this accident and, uh, you know, shift in perspective, respecting the mountains more, maybe doing it less for ego. Um, what were some of the goals then? What were you doing? I, I know you went out with friends, like you said, but what were some of the things you were putting yourself through at that point? Um, I mean, I, you know, backcountry skiing has always been a really big part of it, uh, of my of my life and sort of getting more into ice climbing and, um, you know, mixed climbing. And just are really learning to appreciate winter in a big way. But one of the big things that happened during that um, uh, during that recovery process is I really really understood the power of uh, community and love um, in healing. Uh, you know, prior to that, I I think I had this this notion that I was 
this like strong independent, you know, this like fallacy really, but this strong independent, uh, you know, athlete and, uh, with a, with a very healthy ego. <laughs> um, and, and I think, you know, I, I definitely pushed a lot of people aside, people I loved and, or, and who loved me and cared for me and didn't really appreciate the role that they were playing in my life. And, um, when I was lying in the hospital bed, uh, with a broken back and hip and like, I literally couldn't wipe my own ass. Um, and just in like sheer agony and kind of quite afraid about what the future would, even though I had like a lot of gratitude of being alive, I was, you know, I was afraid about what the future would hold. And, uh, you know, just the, the caring touch from, you know, these like, you know, nurses and, uh, you know, support staff, um, to, to family and friends who, who drove like over six hours to come visit me just really reminded me, um, and opened my eyes to the importance of community. And so I, I try to do a much better job at, um, you know, showing gratitude and love for my community and spending time with the people that really matter to me. Well, take us through um, that day uh, that you experienced with Laura. But before that, I, I, I want to ask about how, how you met Laura because it was uh, it it was not as uh, frictionless as as uh, it <laughs> could have been. I, I, there was a lot of uh, <laughs> you you had to you had to pursue a little bit. She was not at all um, yeah. making it easy for you. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, pr- prior to my accident in Rogers Pass, uh, the year before, I- I'd met this uh, this wonderful this wonderful woman. Her name is Laura Kozakowski, and uh, we we actually met online. And uh, you know, she was a she was an anesthesia resident, so she was a you know a doctor in training in in, in anesthesiology. And she'd just come off a thirty hour shift, and we agreed to meet for a beer. And I remember seeing a photo of her, and she's like super beautiful obviously incredibly smart um, and really, really athletic woman. I was like, oh my God, this person's kind of perfect. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had actually sent her a message on the dating app and she actually kind of hated the dating app. <laughs> and so I don't think she ever really checked it and I didn't hear anything back, didn't hear anything back. But I noticed that we had some friends in common. And so I messaged one of my friends and I was like, hey, do you mind putting in a good, this like, <laughs> do you mind putting in a good word with this? But Laura <laughs> just sort of telling her she should probably meet up with me <laughs> and luckily they, they were a good a good a good wingman and uh and, and, and he did and uh we ended up meeting for a beer at the kensington pub and she'd just come off a 24 or 30 hour shift and was absolutely shattered and was going to bail on it but decided last minute to actually come and i remember seeing her um, outside the pub and was like oh man she's even more beautiful in person than she is in her photos and we ended up just having this really really deep meaningful conversation and there's just like an instant sort of chemistry and attraction, but we were both just coming out of, um, of you know, of, of longer term relationships. And, um, you know, it was a little bit of, um, I'm not sure if we, either one of us was quite ready, uh, to move on yet. And, uh, but we, you know, we, um, I knew that she liked, uh, you know, mountain activity. She grew up as a competitive climber, but she, she played competitive hockey and, uh, her, her dad was a, a mountaineer. And so we started going for some light ski tours and some, some rock climbing together and, end up going and doing a few out al- like easy alpine r- routes together and um just had these really wonderful uh, connections out in nature together but you know then then you get back to the valley there's a little still a little bit of uh, and, and she was working a lot at the time as well uh, and i was also working as a lawyer um and so it was a little bit challenging to actually sort of to, to hold that same connection um in you know in the valleys as we could in the mountains and uh, so we were pretty hot and cold. Um, but then when I had my accident, uh, you know, I think it, it, it kind of just knocked both of us into, you know, like, what are, what are we doing here? Um, you know, she, uh, she, she dropped everything and came and helped and looked after me and helped me recover. And it really, really just uh, bonded us in this really, really special way and ended up um, 
getting married a year later. And, uh, you know, she became one of my main climbing and backcountry ski partners. And we did a lot. And she could move, like, effortlessly in the mountains. And it was just a, and just also just a joy to be around. And, um, you know, and we also traveled the world together as well. Uh, we, we were both, once again, like, really just curious and adventurous people. And very much so, even though we were both professionals, um, we both very much had a, a work-to-live uh, kind of mentality. So we would take months off to go and travel and climb and uh, explore the world um, as much as we could together. And so, yeah, just was a really, really special, unique uh, couple of years together. Wow. Well, I, I know that obviously you had an, an accident out in the mountains. I don't know how typically people approach asking you about that, but uh, I do want to, you know, I do want to share with folks what happened. And, and if, do you mind sharing some of that story? I know we don't have, tons and tons of times so i don't mean to bring it up before you start no something no, else. no no that's okay <laughs> no um no i mean it's, it's totally fair it's i've been quite public about it um in in january of 2020 uh laura and i uh, were a friend and i uh, a friend of mine and i were gonna go check out a new to us area um he's a he's a ski guide um in the canadian rockies and just this wonderful wonderful skier and um we, we've been talking for months about actually getting out together, but he, you know, he, he has a really busy guiding schedule and really hard for him to actually find time to go free skiing and ski for fun. And I finally had a, a day off. And um, so we agreed to meet and Laura um, didn't have any, didn't have any uh, work duties that day. And so she asked if she could come along. And um, so we were all really psyched to go and check out this, uh, this area in Banff National Park um, at the base of Mount Hector which is one of the, you know, one of the, the bigger peaks in the area. And uh, it's an area, Mount Laura and I had climbed and summited a bunch of times, but we wanted to go check out one of the lower bowls. And um, in that time of year, you know, it was a really, really cold day, uh, but it had snowed quite a lot. Um, the avalanche conditions were, um, you know, were considerable, which is, um, you know, quite, quite a touchy snowpack. Um, but, you know, we, the three of us all, you know, we obviously uh, Kevin was a, you know, world-renowned ski guide. Uh, Laura and I had the highest level of recreational avalanche training, and I was on the board of directors of Avalanche Canada. And you know, we were, you know, skied, um, you know, hundreds of days every year. Uh, you know, so I had a pretty good sense of the environment and sort of risk man- management. And um, so we went out, and we we're just hoping for a fun day of powder skiing in a new, in a new area. And we went and checked out one area, and we we you know we know some wind slab forming, and so we didn't we weren't really happy with that zone, so we moved over to a slightly different aspect and. Um, you know, we sort of try to mitigate hazards as much as possible. And we skied these like beautiful shoots and we, uh, we had a good skin track in. So we started lapping areas and sort of progressively moving across this ridge line. And, um, finally, you know, the wind started to pick up and the temps got cold and, you know, um, we decided to sort of call it a day. And, uh, so final run of the day, we identified some hazards. We identified a little creek at the bottom and sort of pointed out a, an area that we were going to regroup in this clump of trees and Laura skied first and, uh, you know, skied this beautiful powder run down this, uh, this wonderful sort of small bowl, um, you know, somewhat sheltered bowl. And then Kevin skied second. And, um, you know, I watched Kevin, I moved forward to go watch Kevin ski because Kevin, Kevin just rips and he's just a joy to, to watch ski. And as he, as I moved forward to go watch Kevin, um, I must've triggered a small, um, convex roll, sort of like a, a little weakness in the snowpack. And, uh, next thing I knew the entire slope, uh, below my feet was avalanching. And, um, so it, it ended up going about, uh, 80, feet, 80 meters. So, um, almost 300 feet across the, this open face. And it ran the 400 meters of the, the bowl. Uh, so about 1600 feet. 
And I started to get caught in the avalanche and I quickly um, self-arrested on my ski poles. I was able to, to stop myself right above the, the crown of the snow. And I, I just watched this avalanche rip down the slope. And uh, once, uh, once the, the powder cloud settled, I started yelling avalanche, avalanche. Um, but they were both quite far down the slope. And um, so I quickly uh, transitioned over to another aspect so I wouldn't trigger any secondary slide over top of them. And I skied down as quickly as I could. And when I got down there, I saw Kevin. And Kevin said he saw Laura in the trees. Um, we start yelling her name. And we, uh, she doesn't respond. I yell again. She doesn't respond. And we, we quickly realized that uh, um, something, something serious had happened. And so we pull out our, our avalanche uh, beacons and start performing a beacon search. And uh, we, we get drawn into this creek bed uh, that we'd identified as a hazard. And... Um, the, the the best reading that we got on our so when you're backcountry skiing everybody in a group um wears these avalanche transceivers that s submit send off a little signal um and there's either a send mode and then if something happens the other people in the party send it to search mode and it starts looking for these signals and the best signal that we got was uh was uh was four meters uh, which means that laura was buried um over 12 feet into the snowpack from us and in this quite a steep cliffside and so we both pulled out our, our avalanche shovels and started digging as, as frantically as we could. But it was quite a complex dig due to the, the steepness of the slope. So we ended up having to, to dig um, from almost 10 meters back, so almost 40 meters, uh, 40 feet plus back uh, to tunnel in so that we wouldn't, so that the snow wouldn't just keep falling in. You have to sort of tunnel your way into, into, the, um, into the person who's buried. And so it took us, um, you know, almost almost 45 minutes to get to her. Um, and when we find, when we got to her, her body was, was up slope and uh, Kevin, she was, she was really blue, but Kevin was able to clear her airway and tried to perform, you know, he, he got a pulse. Um, well, he, he told me he got a pulse, um, but he, in fact, in, in retrospect, he, he, he lied to me. Um, and we, we ended up having to keep digging for another 45 minutes. And I, the second we got the, the 12 foot uh, reading, I, uh, I, I, um, press send on my uh, had a, a in reach with me um because there's no cell signal where we were and so that had initiated a um a call to local search and rescue and uh um so after an hour and a half of digging we finally uh, got laura out and we tried performing cpr on her and there, we got no response and, um you know we took every bit of clothing that i had in my pack and tried to keep her warm and i sat with her and held her and caressed her and tried my best to not fully uh collapsed because i i thought that she was uh she was dead at that point um and finally when the search and rescue crew went up they were they were all friends of ours and they recognized us and that just absolutely crushed me when they saw um who we were and you could just see the look even though they were all very professional you could see the look on their faces that just looked really serious and um you know it was obviously really hard and traumatic on them and so they they packaged laura and flew her out and then uh, they came back and got Kevin and me, and when I was being long lined out, um, I, I completely collapsed and uh, uh, just absolutely just started crying and screaming and punching and kicking in the air. And um, Laura got flown to a hospital about a hundred miles away, so we uh, we had some friends drive us to the hospital. And um, when we got there, they told us that. Uh, Laura, um, you know, was in a really, really serious state. Um, she had a very faint pulse, but uh, they didn't, you know, they didn't, there was, 
they were going to do what they could to try and they were trying to warm her at the time but they didn't know if there was any brain activity and um the following day uh they um they so they had to stop uh, um providing life support to laura the uh her 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 bowels had uh had died and sort of the, the medical term will never forget what the doctor said they're like that's incompatible with life so they um they decided that there was uh that there was nothing more they could do for her and so by this point word had gotten out that um uh, to the broader community and, and friends and family that you know this had happened and um so we all basically just gathered around Laura and held her and sat with her and talked to her and you know supported her and slowly just watched as she died I'm sorry yeah um so that was January 11th of 2020 and this sort of being living with um you know with, with the consequence of that I mean I triggered triggered the avalanche and um you know wasn't able to save Laura and and I don't think you ever really can. So, also just in terms of the fact that you can't ever really make sense of it. Um, you know, I, I know that you've been asked about that so many times, and I hate to have to revisit it with you again. But you know, what what do you think? Have, having gone through something so traumatic yourself, and having having gone through that, I I mean, and that was right before the pandemic. I mean, that was just gosh, blow after blow. Um, what do you think you're learning about life through these experiences or what do you think that that you can share that you know what I'm saying like what is maybe some mm-hmm. of the overarching lessons no, that sure. you've learned yeah. about this life that we're all living yeah no no I mean I um I mean you know, I, I have you know I've I've been really really um I've been really fortunate through through a lot of my life you know I come from um, you know, like I have a privileged family background I've had to, I got to experience some incredible highs. I've got to see large parts of the world. Um, you know, I don't have to worry about getting, putting food on my table or feeding my family. I've been really, really fortunate in that way. But at the same time, like life is just, is, life can just be hard and it can be short. And I really, you know, I, I kind of made a promise to Laura that I was still going to just try to have as much gratitude for her and try to experience much of the life that she will never get to experience. And, um, you know, really, once again, as I as I did through my my initial accident, really had to support and rely on my community and and friends to to see me through these incredibly hard times. And and I just were reminded of how important it is to um, to hold the people that you love close. And then also just to go and like try to find those like deep, rich life experiences, like the awe moments in life, but, you know, like the material things and the results and all that stuff doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Like it's, they're cool things to have, but what you really, really remember, like the, what I think about her, like, you know, the little smiles I got to have Laura and um, you know, telling her I love her, having coffee with her in the morning and I really miss those things. So I think just trying to have like a real, real deep appreciation for those moments when you get them. And don't take those things for granted. Sorry. No, those are that those those moments are what make up life. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, like life is about love ultimately, you know, and but it is also about hardship, you know, like that's also a part of it. Like, you know, it's not don't hide from those emotions either. Um, I think just accepting the fact that sometimes life is hard and sometimes things are shit, 
Um, it's part of my part of my language there, but it, they just are. And asking for help in those moments and allowing people to to support you, and then supporting your friends as well when they're going through that stuff is really really important. Do you see people differently now? Just maybe not knowing what people might be going through. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's that classic saying that, you know, you know, be kind, everybody's going, like, you don't know what struggles people are going through. Um, I, I do genuinely believe that. Um, I think that, if, you know, we're all just trying to do our best. Like, everybody's trying to do their best, and we all kind of fumble our way along. Nobody has any of this figured out. Um, and I don't think that there is a, a right or a wrong. Well, there's, there's definitely some wrong ways to do things, but <laughs> just try to be kind to people, have a lot of compassion for them, try to understand their viewpoint and where they're coming from. Um, I think if you can do those things, you may not agree with them, but at least you've given them sort of the dignity uh, of, of trying and given them space. And I think that that can sort of, um, you know, open a lot of, well, one, it could open your, your, your eyes and mind to a whole new world of viewing, but also just showing people general kindness comes back to you in spades as well. And not that it needs to come back to you, but it, it, it generally does. And I think you just end up living life in a slightly happier, more content way. You said, uh, I heard you say before that life has always been about finding your edge. Um, what, what, what is your edge now? Um, I, I actually, I don't necessarily know if it's, I don't know if it's about finding your edge. I think it's just, it's, it's about just like deep curiosity. Um, you know, and curiosity means sort of being willing to explore slightly uncomfortable places and spaces. Um, and so I'd say that that's, that's what it is. It's once again, it's just, a deep knowledge, like wanting to have a deep knowledge and curiosity about what's around the next corner, what's somebody thinking. So just replacing yourself in positions to be able to, to explore those curiosities can go a really long way to, to leading a very rich and fulfilled life. Mm. And, you know, I know you had really big goals before and you said you still do. What, what would you say one of your biggest goals you haven't yet achieved is now? Oh, uh, I mean, probably having a family. <laughs> uh, I think there's one thing I'd like to have. It'd be, it'd be that, like, uh, you know, whatever that means. Um, but I'd say that that's probably, once again, I, I don't think I'm really, I try not to be too concerned with, like, actual outcomes of things. But just, you know, you know, at the end of my life, sort of, if I could have people say, you know, he was a kind, compassionate, curious, adventurous person. I think that that would mean a lot to me. Um, so I think sort of that, and I'm thinking a lot more about sort of my, my legacy going forward is I'm no longer, um, you know, the athlete I used to be, but I'm sort of, but, you know, I just want to keep evolving and changing. You know, like I don't want to be the same person I was when I was 15 or 16 or 20 or 30. Um, I want to keep evolving as a person and experiencing life to its fullest and sort of exp- keep, you know, evolving and adventuring with it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, I tell you what, I, I'll, I'll wrap up with this. Um, you know, on each can of beer at Athletic Brewing, it says brew without compromise. And we realized in order to brew without compromise, you need to live without compromise. Um, and so considering all the life that you've lived so far and what you've experienced, what does it mean to you to live without compromise? Well, once again, I just think it's like, you know, it's just, you know, dare to try. I think it's just, just you know, don't be afraid to, to try new things. Um, you know, don't be afraid of failure. Uh, just put it out there. Try it if you're curious about it. Don't be afraid to be a beginner either. Um, like it's actually really fun to learn new skills and develop, and you, you never know what sort of community may come from that. Um, and in terms of the – it's interesting, actually. In terms of the, the non uh, – you know, uh, drinking non-alcoholic beer, I mean, you know, having a cup of tea, um, having a, a brew, is to me, is all part of 
sort of the overall mountain experience because that's like where community forms so you share stories and um i sort of uh, i've really really tried to cut back on alcohol i uh just due to um you know so everything i've gone through i definitely have dealt with some mental health issues and emotional issues and um and i found that you know consuming alcohol one could be a, a potentially dangerous crutch for me and I also just found it really affected me in, in quite a deep way. And, but I also just really love beer. <laughs> You're quite a predicament there. Yeah, so, non, so non-alcoholic <laughs> beer has been a wonderful way for me to sort of still engage in those pastimes and activities I really enjoy in a way that doesn't um, have a negative impact on me. Uh, in fact, it just kind of enhances my life because when I, I just, I, nothing more, nothing I like better than finishing an adventure, getting back to the truck or getting home and, you know, uh, opening a cooler or a fridge and, and cracking a beer and handing one, or most importantly, handing one to my partners that I'm with, cracking it with them and then start storytelling. And that to me is like, that's the, that's the peak experience that you have all day. There are a lot more details to Adam's story. You can find out more by looking up other shows, uh, follow him on Instagram, which actually he just took a break from. Uh, But if you want to try Athletic Brewing, we are for sale in Canada, the U.S., the EU, the U.K., Australia. Um, You can get it shipped to most of those places as well for free by going to our website. And if you want to find it on store shelves, there is a store finder there as well. So keep living without compromising. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.